0: Good morning. Turn with me your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be in verses 5 through 14. Kids, it can be found in the Bibles that we have given you on 1001. Page 1001. You'll be helped to have your Bible open um, because um, these are... These are deep truths and uh, we'll be pointing to scripture often and we may be flipping around some. And so um, it'll help it if your eyes land on what we're talking about. As, as, we've, as we've begun this study of Hebrews, one thing that's been difficult for me to figure out is why the writer uh, is so concerned about angels here in the beginning. Uh, in chapters one and two, we see a lot of talk. About angels. Now, angel worship was uh, that was seems to be an issue in Colossae. We uh, just read from Colossians chapter two that Paul warned the Colossians not to worship angels. Don't fall prey to that angel worship. But it, every commentator says that this was not really an issue uh, for the Hebrews. If you're looking for a, a listening guide, they are on the back table uh, back there. If you want one, if you want kid's listening guide or on the other side uh, is the uh, outline. Sorry, uh, I just saw some people kind of lingering back there. So um, go do that. Um, <clears throat> but so it was an issue in Colossians, in, in uh, the book of Colossians, but not so much here. But Alistair Begg pointed out something that may help us understand what's happening here. Um, the problem isn't so much their view of angels, as it was their view of Christ. There's a tendency among first century Christians to uh, to accept the distinctiveness of Christ, but to deny his divinity. They were thinking that he was something other than man, but not quite God. So they possibly regarded him as like one of the greatest or one of the chief angels. There are many in the in the angelic throng who were who were created to, uh, to proclaim and to protect God's people. And they may have thought, that. so Israel may have thought, well, these angels are intermediaries. And so Jesus is one of these intermediaries between God and man. And he was just the best one of these. We hear talk, all kinds of talk about angels um, in these first two chapters. And we may find it kind of mystical and shadowy for us. But we have to understand that angels are all over the Bible. There are 282 references to angels uh, in in the Bible. And there are more references to angels in the New Testament than there are the Old. The first mention of angels is in Genesis chapter 16 when the angel appears to Hagar. And in the Old Testament, there are angel armies that are fighting for Israel, they're comforting people, they're protecting people from danger, they're traveling up and down on ladders, and they go into the land before Israel. And in the New Testament, angels are appearing to shepherds, they're appearing to in dreams, they're caring for Jesus in the wilderness, they separate the wicked from the righteous, they open prison doors, they loosen chains, they loosen, they lead prisoners out, they lead Philip in evangelism, they speak to Jews, they speak to Gentiles, they speak to Romans, they stand before Paul as he's shipwrecked at sea. There's no wonder there's some confusion and heightened interest about Asians, uh, Asians about angels uh, here in, the, in a couple of decades after Jesus' Jesus's death, a few decades after Jesus' death. Now, the critical thing for us to know about angels is that they are real. The writer to Hebrews doesn't say, get out of here, angels. No, come on, they don't exist. He gives them every consideration here. But the focus of this sermon, nor of the passage, is angels. The focus of our passage is Jesus Christ. So the author spends some considerable time here on the front end in these first couple of chapters of of Hebrews, setting the stage for the rest of the book by teaching who Jesus really is. Last week, we considered how there may be a tug back to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament for these Jewish Christians. And so the writer to Hebrews said, "Okay, if you want to go back to the Old Testament, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to the Old Testament and see what it has to say about Jesus. So here in these 10 verses, the writer to Hebrews refers to seven Old Testament texts. Some of them come from Moses in the law. Some come from Nathan the prophet in the history of Israel. And the majority come from the Psalms. Now in Pastor Kyle's email this week, he gave you the seven Old Testament texts for references. And so being the good church members, the diligent church members you are, I'm sure many of you looked these up in preparation for our sermon today. And you may have looked at some of them and thought, I'm not sure this is really talking about Jesus. This feels to me a stretch. I think Nathan's talking to David about his son. He's not talking about Jesus But this brings up an important point for us to remember when we're reading our Bibles. We should always allow scripture to interpret scripture. And so if the New Testament is quoting an Old Testament passage, we should pay attention to it and see see it through their eyes and read it the way that they read it and understand it the way that they understand it. It's always a good idea to read our Bibles the way biblical writers read their Bibles. You can always be on safe theological ground if you're reading your Bible the same way a New Testament writer is reading it. This is what Jesus did on the way to Emmaus with the, when he encountered the two men walking to Emmaus in Luke, Luke 24. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He was taking those things that they didn't realize, and he's saying, You remember that? Yeah, that appealed, that, that was me. That applies to me. That's who I was. That was talking about me. <clears throat> so we should pay attention to this passage because through it, we learn what God thinks of Jesus and how the Old Testament spoke of Jesus. So let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter 5. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. <clears throat> For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son... He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? For the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, this is God's word. So the first thing we learn here in our passage is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. This is something we saw last week. In verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But here we have God the Father testifying to the divinity of Jesus, and we also learn of the unique relationship between the Father and the Son. He begins with this quote in verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a quote from Psalm 2-7. I'd like for us to focus on the relational aspect of this quote at the beginning, And not The second part seems to say that Jesus was born or that there was a time when Jesus wasn't. But while begotten can mean born, to be born, it can also mean to give rise to or to bring about. And it's this latter meaning that's being described here that we're going to talk about more in a minute. But I'd like for us to focus on that first part. You are my son. In the last half of verse 5, he says... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is a quote from 2 Samuel seven fourteen. So we see that there is definitely this affection between the father and the son that they enjoy. But I would like for us to focus on how the father describes the son. Look at verse 8. But of the son... Of the Son, the Father says, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is God the Father speaking, Your throne, O God. This is a quote from Psalm forty five six. Now we read this psalm, and if you looked at the if you looked at it this week, you would notice that the superscription for the Psalm doesn't say anything about God the Father speaking to God the Son. It's written by the sons of Korah. The writer of Hebrews doesn't dispute that the sons of Korah wrote Psalm 45, but what he's saying is what they wrote was speaking of how the Father spoke of the Son. The Father is praising the Son as God. And then down in verse 10, the father refers to the son as the Lord. But look at verse nine. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He's again, the father is speaking to the son. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So we see this deeply unique relationship within the Godhead. The Father is God and the Son is God. There's a mutual submission with the Godhead as the Father calls the Son Lord. And there's an adoration and a unity and a submission that's very hard to comprehend. And it's proven from the Old Testament. This is proven from the Old Testament, not the New. So what difference does this make to us? Why should we care about this? For me, as I thought about it this week, it was one of assurance that was so comforting to me. As I thought about this fact this week, my mind was immediately drawn to Colossians 3, 1-4 through 4, that we uh, used as our uh, New, Ter- New Testament text today. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And so Mark Jones in his book, Knowing Christ, says, Jesus did not rise from the dead alone. He did not descend alone, he did not ascend alone, and he does not sit in glory alone. No, he rose, ascended, and sits as the husband of his bride. He took with him into glory all his people upon his breast, so that we are as secure as he is in the heavenly places." And we also are caught up into the affection, this affection within the Godhead between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And so we're, we're, we are a part of this affection that the Father and the Son have for one another. We're not some drossy part of that relationship either. For how could anything impure ever be allowed into this space among the Father and the Son? So when I read this, I'm encouraged to carry on that work through the rest of Colossians chapter 3. To finish the job, to complete the task of putting to death whatever earthly in me that remains. We have a security that's found in the affection that the father has with the son. We can be encouraged to live a life of holiness so that we may realize one day, we want a taste of that today, what we will one day experience in heaven. We also see the Father praise the Son as creator, further leading to uh, his testifying that Jesus is God. Look at verse 10, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning in the heavens, are the work of your hands. This is from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Now again, if you read Psalm 102, you read the superscription, it doesn't say anything about the father talking to the son. In fact, it says that it's a complaint before the Lord. But the writer to Hebrews, he says that verses 25 through 27 or the Father speaking to the Son. In the angels in comparison, God commands the angels to worship him in verse 6. We're going to think more about that in a minute. The angels know their place. They know they are not God. They are ministers of God. I don't know why, but I always find it amusing in in uh, the book of Revelation when John's talking about being caught up into heaven and he encounters these angels. There are two occasions where he encounters these angels. One's in, in uh, uh, Revelation 19.10 uh, and the other uh, is in Revelation 22.8. These are angelic beings, right? They're, they're evidently very awe-inspiring. And so much so that when John sees them, he falls on his face to worship them. And immediately the angels are like, don't do that. Stop, get up, get up. We're created. We're, we're not to be worshiped. We're, we're servants. Don't worship us, worship God. In fact, they say, I am a fellow servant with you. Don't worship me, worship God. So the angels know we're not do any worship. We worship Jesus. So you don't worship us, you worship Jesus too. We see a further distinction between Jesus and the angels in verse 7, where we see that the angels were created by the Son. So not only is Jesus not an angel, but the angels were made by him and they worship and serve him. Jesus is God. Next, we learn our second point is that Jesus is the king that was promised. Jesus is the king that was promised. We see this explicitly in verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, if we think back with me for a second, when Israel first clamored for a king. You remember, they were with Samuel, and it's in 1 Samuel chapter 8. What did God tell Samuel? Samuel. When Samuel was discouraged and dejected because Israel wanted a king and Samuel feels like a failure and and God says, don't worry, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. But there's something very telling about that request in 1 Samuel 8. Why did Israel want a king? Now, we typically say that Israel wanted a king to be like all the other nations, and that's certainly a part of it, but I don't believe that that was the precipitating factor to why Israel wanted a king. First Samuel 8.3 says that Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. So when the elders of Israel asked Samuel to appoint them a king, the first thing they say is, look, Samuel, you're old. And your sons, they don't walk in your ways. They wanted to be ruled in uprightness. They had seen some very good things in Samuel. But Samuel was fleeting. Samuel was getting old and declining. And they look at the sons behind him and they say, these guys are no good. We need a king. We want a righteous king to care for us. They were expecting that a king could do for them what hadn't been done up to that point. Someone to rule them righteously, who did right. They understood that as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. But if we know anything about Israel's kings, it's that they were not righteous, not even the best of them. David, David did unthinkably heinous things and so there's a hope that one day things would be different and in fact there was a promise to David that there would be one to come who would be the king that Israel needed we see this in the last half of verse 5 that I uh, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son this is a quote from 2nd Samuel uh, yeah 2nd Samuel 7 verse 13 and 14 now we've got to think when when the biblical writers or when Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, they don't have, you know, most of them don't have copies of books. They don't have nothing, there's no verses or anything. And so Jesus doesn't go, well, if you think back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, they don't have any of that. And so they if they refer to a if they refer to a common phrase These people in their minds would go, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And so then they begin to kind of think, what else is around that? You know, you kind of lead up to it and you think through it. It's kind of like if we say, uh, as Tim was praying, you know, uh, we know your need. You know our needs even before we ask them. So when we hear God knows our needs, even before we ask them, our minds may go to, "Okay, yeah, I'm thinking of. Matthew chapter 6 and so seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well for you know don't don't seek clothes ask what shall we shall eat or what we shall drink or what shall we wear and so when Tim mentions that one simple phrase then it brings to mind a whole other area or paragraph or several lines of scripture that caused me to think about other things and that's what's going on here so this is a quote from second samuel 7 13 i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son where nathan is speaking on behalf of god to david saying that he will raise up offspring after david is dead and gone and he will establish his throne forever and this isn't like one of the kings that samuel warned about kings who would take their sons and daughters and make them soldiers to go before him and protect him and fight for him or Uh, take his their daughters to uh, to be his cooks and his slaves and his concubines no we 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 have a king god is promising a king who will care for us and who will do for us what no other king could do we see this alluded in a couple two in a couple of ways in our text in hebrews six and again when he brings the firstborn into the world He says, um, let all God's angels worship him. Now, we talked about this earlier. This firstborn doesn't mean that Jesus was created. In Exodus chapter 4, God refers to Israel as his firstborn. His priority, his prominent one, his heir, his focus. But Israel failed. And the blessings of obedience and curses of disobedience were all too familiar to Israel. There's this thought throughout the Old Testament that maybe, just maybe, Israel has finally out-sinned the mercy of God. And that we will no longer be our, his firstborn. We will no longer be his, the apple of his eye. Maybe he'll start with someone new. Maybe he'll forget us and move on to a more faithful people. Israel would lose their status as God's firstborn. But God always in the Old Testament says, he, he, he threatens discipline, but he says, but I will not let my love depart from you. I will. He's always talking about his mercy to them. And so God provided a new firstborn, Jesus. God provided a new firstborn, Jesus, who stood in the place of Israel. He never sinned. He perfectly obeyed the Father and was perfect in every way. He secured a righteousness for Israel that they could never, ever provide for themselves. But if we continue to read even the remainder, it may help to turn over there. Turn over to 2 Samuel 7. That's on page 259, if you've got one of our Bibles. So if you read 2 Samuel 7... the writer to Hebrews is saying, okay, this is talking, this is Nathan talking to David about Jesus. But then if we just read the next, ver- the next sentence, even in verse 14, we think this can't be about Jesus because it says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I take it from Saul, whom I put away before you. So how could that be talking about Jesus when he talks about when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him. Jesus never sinned. But again, the writer to Hebrews is saying that this is talking about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the king we all needed. He never sinned. And so the king provided a righteousness we cannot produce on our own. In Jesus is the king Israel longed for that was like no other. He didn't have someone go before him and die for him. Instead, he went before us into death. And God the Father punished him, disciplined him at the hands of men in our place. The Father poured out his wrath on the Son as if he had sinned. The totality of the sin of the elect was placed on Jesus and he was punished for it as if he had committed the iniquity himself yet we see in second samuel 7 715 that in spite of that the father's love would never ever depart from this king so while he is disciplining him for the sins of an unfaithful people his love is not departing from the one he disciplines Jesus is the king that loved righteousness and hated wickedness, verse nine. He is the king that not only Israel waited for, he's, the king, he's not only the king that we have waited for, he's the king that the heavenly realms waited for. Let me show you what I mean. I mentioned this early in verse five, today I have begotten you. And I said that that did not refer to Jesus's incarnation or his birth, but rather it refers to his exaltation or his coronation in heaven. His arrival in the heavenly realms when he was seated on the throne, when God anointed him with the oil of gladness. I don't know about you, but I don't think much about Jesus' ascension into heaven. It's just kind of a, okay, yeah, I know he's there, and he's coming again. That's what we hear from Acts 1, right? Why do you keep staring up into heaven? He's going to come back down the same way he went up. That's what the angels told the people standing there in Acts 1. But sometimes when we're watching a live broadcast of Something, there are two things that I think of immediately, like when a team wins a championship or in um, a, um, uh, an inauguration, a presidential inauguration. You know, you have like different camera shots. And so you have one camera shot where you watch the celebration and then you see them go into the locker room. You know, and so you're like, oh, man, I wish I could see what's going on right in there right now. And immediately the next shot is inside the locker room and the camera is welcoming them in. And so you see what's going on behind the scenes. Like when the president, when he's inaugurated and they leave and they walk into the White House and you go, man, it'd be interesting to see what their first reaction is. And invariably, you'll have that next camera shot of them coming in. Remember when uh, Obama became, President Obama was inaugurated, they showed him on his Blackberry just texting people. And so I was like, that's kind of a behind the scenes that you don't get. Well, we see a behind the scenes here that we don't normally get. Mark Jones says that we get something like this in Daniel chapter 7. And we get it from this passage as well. So we read in Acts 1 where Jesus is being taken up into heaven. And so why do you keep standing there? He's going to come back down the same way he, came up, he goes up. But we look at Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, and we get the heavenly view of Jesus arriving into heaven. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus arrives in heaven, having united all things together. Can you imagine the joy of heaven In heaven of having Jesus arrive back into heaven? This is a crass analogy, but... It's like when Tom Cruise in Top Gun, when Maverick lands back on the carrier after, uh, after defeating the enemies and after rescuing um, the people who are in trouble. And he opens up his canopy and everybody just rushes to him and they're, you know, they're back him and just, you know, hurrahing. Well, we see that except in an infinitely greater scale when Jesus arrives back in the heavens. Can you imagine the joy in the departed saints who had died before and they see Jesus in heaven once again? John Owen says that this is the greatest instance of created glory that ever was or ever shall be until the consummation of all things. Mark Jones adds, heaven was as perfect as it could be before Christ entered it, but it was also as perfect as it could be once he entered it heaven attained a greater glory with his entrance. The angels and all the angelic host, including the elect saints that had passed on before, are worshiping him around the throne. And what does the father say to him? Hebrews 1.8 and verse 13. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Sit at my right hand until I make, for you, uh, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So think about Saul being anointed as king of Israel in 1 Samuel 10. Samuel takes a flask of oil and he he poured it on his head. Think of David being anointed king in 1 Samuel 16 and Samuel taking a horn of oil and anointing him in the midst of his brothers. Here Jesus arrives in heaven after accomplishing salvation for the glory of God and he's welcomed into the heavenly realms as God himself anoints him with oil. As the eternal king... He invites him to sit on the throne as the ruler of all things. Brothers and sisters, this is the king we need. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had this week with you all or other friends or family members this week talking about Russia and Ukraine. People are worried. What do we do with that unease? Well, instead of looking to Fox News, Look to Jesus, the one who rules over all. Pray for Putin, as Pastor Tim did. Pray for the rulers of the world. Pray confidently. Pray expectantly. Don't pray like, oh, Lord, this looks complicated, so if you can do anything, do the best you can under the circumstances. No, he commands angels. Pray that he would send them out. Pray that he would turn the hearts of presidents and soldiers. Pray that he would strengthen the hearts of the Ukrainians. Pray that he would stop bullets. Pray that he would start. He would strengthen the hearts of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. I, I saw this morning uh, a record, a a, um, a a short video, of Ukrainian brothers and sisters on this Lord's Day singing, "He will hold me fast" in Ukrainian. Pray that he who directs the kings' hearts of kings like a water course. Would give the world a united mind and resolve to promote peace in the world. We've learned this week that the relative peace we've known in Europe for the last 30 years or so may be coming to an end. It feels like the book of Judges, where we read, and the land had peace for 10 years, and the land had peace for 40 years, and the land had peace for 80 years and the land had rest and there were no wars in those years. We think that it's all come to an end but we've realized this week that we're just in one of those gracious lulls where the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Really? The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places? With worldwide pandemics and terrorist attacks? We For have forgotten that we live in a hostile Psalm 2 kind of world. Where the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. It's a disturbing time and it may get much worse. But our hope isn't in the efficacy of sanctions. Our hope is not in this president or a different president. Our hope is in the king who sits in the heavens and laughs. Who will one day break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The king who rules and reigns over all. He is our hope. Jesus is the king that was promised and hoped for. He is the king we need. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Lastly, we see that Jesus is eternal and unchanging. We see this pretty clearly from verses 10 through 12. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. In your years will have no end. The point Jesus's plans or the purposes of God in Christ are never changed. His disp- disposition toward his people never changes. And his reign will have no end. He is eternal. As Bobby Jameson says, the son's eternity begins before all things. And ends with his eternity beyond all things. The sun precedes, creates and outlives the universe. The angels, they change. Jesus creates them as he wishes. He makes them winds and flames of fire. And what do you place your trust? The foundations of the earth, the works of the heavens, they perish but the Lord remains they'll wear out like a garment and Jesus will be the one to roll them up this world is passing away but Jesus is the same and his years will have no end there's a movie recently called don't look up it's a movie about astronomers who find a comet that's headed toward earth and it will be a direct hit in six months and it will destroy the entire earth and it's written to alarm people about the threats, kind of an analogy or an allegory about climate change and talks about how, oh, if we just ignore it, we just put our hands, heads in the sand, that's how we're dealing with it. It's a helpful movie, not for that reason, but because rather it's caused me to think about my priorities. What am I placing my trust in? How would I act or respond if we only had six months before I knew that the earth was going to be destroyed? I don't mention this to bag on the movie. I think we're all called to be stewards of the earth. This earth is not disposable. I only mention this because our text tells us that this world is passing away. It is passing away. And when eliminating fossil fuels or greenhouse gases is not going to keep it from happening. NASA will not be able to invent anything that will change the fact that this earth is passing away. So ignore the movie title and do look up. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And look to him not because he may keep the earth from passing away. Verse 12 says he's going to be the one that does it. He's the one that's going to roll up the earth. But this doesn't lead to hopelessness. No, instead it leads to hope in the Lord, the unchangeable, eternal God and King. And so we end where we did last week. Where else can we turn? Who else is worthy of our worship? Jesus is God who is eternal, who is unchangeable. Who created all things, who is outside of time, for he created time. And Jesus is our king who commands and rules over all things. Yet this eternal God and king left heaven and came to earth as a man, subjecting himself to the constraints of the world that he had created, and yet that he himself sustains. He was hungry, he was tired. He suffered pain. He suffered sorrow. He allowed his created to kill him so that he may take on himself the punishment that you and I are due. And he took it on himself in full. And he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And he was welcomed into heaven as the conquering victorious king with glorious shouts of praise from one end of heaven to the other. In whom should we place our trust if not him? Place it in Jesus. In him who rules right now on the throne. In him who the father promises to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. In him who commands his angels concerning you. The ministering spirits he he himself sends out to serve for your sake. To bring you safely home in salvation. Behold, Jesus, our eternal God and King. Let's pray. Father, you have searched us and known us. You know when we sit down. You know when we lie down. You know when we go in, we go out. We can never hide from your presence. Darkness is light to you. You know our thoughts even before we say them. Before a word is on our tongue, you know it completely. Lord God, we have heard deep, deep truths today. Forgive us for the limitations of our minds that cannot grasp the heights and the depths and the love and the width and the length of your love for us in Christ. But Father, we pray that you would allow these truths to weigh heavily on us, and that as we contemplate them and as we turn them over in our minds that it would not lead to some deeper factual knowledge of you but that we would grow in our appreciation and our love and our gratitude and in our devotion to you we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ in whom we see your face. It's in his name we can pray. Amen.